0: So, yeah, today here
1: is Patrick Murphy. Thanks, Patrick. Hey, thank you. Thank you. A lot of familiar faces out there. This is great. Easy, audience. I am feeling it already. Usually with undergrads especially, I have to warm up the room a little bit, but I I feel like I'm a part of this family in here right now. So that's awesome. Um, As I go through this, if you have questions or want to, like, make a comment or anything like that, please let me know. It's absolutely no... Problem. Uh, collaboration is something that I, I care deeply about. I, I do it, but I also teach people how to do it um, with our students. And yes, question. Is that upside down? It is.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is. Um, and collaboration is very important. It's vitally important. If you don't have collaboration in an organization, you have essentially some kind of. Uh, Something other than a productive organization. You have a, like a PEZ dispenser seance, or you have some sort of group of individuals that don't talk to each other, that just sit there and uh, maybe look at each other all day. And that's bad. As a management PhD, I don't like to see organizations that don't have that. I think our organization is very good. I think we have some very interesting personalities in our organization, um, and not just on the faculty side, also on the staff side, but that makes it a really interesting place. But that that also means that there are um, synergies and complementarities that can be better understood and better gotten around by a better understanding of what collaboration actually is. So that's my little intro to this topic. And um, next, I just wanna talk briefly about why I'm here talking to you about this, because all of you, have collaborated just like I have. Um, I just wanna give you a sense of what I've done. Take a couple minutes to do that. Um, so to build an ethos, a sense of credibility, just just a little bit. So I, I pulled together some images from my past experiences and um, I'd just like to share them with you. So I, I don't know how many of you know that I was in the military at one point. Um, I'm a veteran and that's me at age 18 uh, getting an award for the best sailor on the Puget Sound Naval Shipyard Navy Base from our commander. Um, and what I learned in the military about collaboration, I learned a lot actually. Um, this is the kind of collaboration where you find out who, who actually can back up what they say. You know, you, I, What I learned, the, the thing I still remember today is that the people who talk the most before something happens are usually the first ones to quit. Um, the loudmouths, so to speak. It, it was an extremely reliable effect. Like before a, a physical challenge or before some kind of test, the people who were talking a good game were usually the first ones to drop out. And I'll never forget that lesson as long as I, I live. This was a place where they brought us all down to the same level. You even lost your name in addition to your hair. You were a number and everybody was equal. You went through the great equalizer and then you, the true talents and traits and styles of individuals were allowed to come out without people hiding them. And that was my first real insight into how people can work together. And a lot of that experience will guide the way that I um, describe this stuff today. Okay, So after the military, I, um, I went to school. I was a really good runner. You can't tell that probably now, but at one point in my life I was really good. That's me right there. I ran track in undergrad. and. Um, I learned a lot about collaboration on the track team. I was in a fraternity, but I, again, I learned about like the, the importance of helping each other out. And sometimes in these races, for instance, you have what's called a pacer. The pacer can't finish, but you may be able to. They just set the pace and you kind of run with them. And it's almost like a psychological sort of helping each other out And then at some point, he'll say, Go! And then you just hit it and you you spill your guts out all the way across the finish line. And um, that, I'm actually in the lead right there, but I didn't win that race. I think I was fourth or fifth. It's the 1500 at the, uh, the regional finals in North Dakota a long time ago. That was like 95 or 96, something like that. Okay, after undergrad, I, you know, I, I really have a passion for education and studying and learning. And so one of the early things I did in graduate school that turned into my master's thesis was a very intense study on um, how personality can be used to forecast compatibility between individuals at work. And this is also gonna guide a lot of what I'm gonna say to you today. This is just, these are just some screenshots I took from a publication of mine, it came out in 2002. I guess, if you really want to read it, it's on my faculty page. It's about um, forecasting compatibility. So how do you know two people will be good when they work together? Um, How can we use personality to forecast that interaction? I won't go into detail now, Um, I will a little bit later, but the real outcome of this study that I thought was really interesting was that, you know, it's that basic question. Do birds of a feather flock together or do opposites attract? It's both. It depends on the trait and it depends on the circumstance. and I'll show you what that looks like a little bit later, but this was something I did. I went to a really quantitative oriented um, doctoral program in Ohio at Wright State University and then while I was there, I a lot of lab work, a lot of uh, controlled studies, and I you know my dad is a railroad a retired railroad executive, so I'm met a lot of like old codger business people growing up and I like dealing with people. I, I'm good at it. I can be good, warm. I'm talking about my personality right now and later I'm going to ask you to think about yours. But I can also be really tough when it comes to my work. I can be almost like rigidly stubborn about certain things. And there's a certain kind of person I'll work best with. And just talking about business people with respect to how that all works was something I wasn't getting when I started my doctoral training. You, in fact, I wasn't dealing with anybody. I was in the lab a lot, a lot of data entry. I used to be able to enter like a 300 item personality inventory doing like A, enter B, enter C, enter A and just doing like this like really, really fast and I would do it before a song was over and I, during my thesis, I was listening to the radio and it was, it was almost unhealthy. You would listen to radio programming and you'd start to detect patterns like, oh, they played that song already today or they play this one early in the day and it was just something that made me think, man, I need something a little bit more and so watch this this is if it'll if it'll come up here i hope it comes up bear with me please i um i like music a lot so The next domain in which I learned about collaboration was in music, and I I actually hope this doesn't come up now because it's kind of embarrassing, Uh, but this is a, well, I tell you what, I promise I'll show it to you later. It's me playing with a band in Nashville on stage, and what I learned about playing with musicians is that you are by definition with people doing something different from yourself. You don't want to be around the same, that's me in the middle. I do a little jump at the end. (laughs) yeah so that's uh that's it and I learned I learned about like um you know there's a drummer back there we that was in Nashville in a hotel lobby and uh we found this session drummer that we didn't know but he had this skill set and he was so good that he could just hear what we were doing and he hit really hard and then we got these other guys who were all kind of different and um that really excited me about collaboration because what you're doing there is fundamentally creative. Creative work requires complementarity, um, different kinds of people coming together. But that comes with its own set of boundaries as well. And all these questions I'm posing for you right now as I walk through my experience, I'm going to answer for you a little bit later. I'm just trying to give you a sense of where I'm where I'm coming from. So after that I I, I got a proper job. I actually do have corporate experience. I'm not a professor who's never worked in a company. I, I worked some of you may know that place. It's out there by Euclid and Roselle, the um, Schneider Electric corporate headquarters, and I had a really cool job where I um, got to work with um, a lot of the top managers, and they were always interested in why people can or can't work together, especially at the top management level um, when there are these personality conflicts. A lot of this is based on the research article that I, that I told you about, but it's a problem because what it leads to is work not getting done. Or working done not very well and psychological discomfort and stress and you don't want to be around that person and so I have I, I used to use these measures I still have some of them that would help them build teams and help them decide who would be best for a project and that was a really cool job but even though my first um, my first academic experience was too academic the corporate world was too corporate. I don't like bureaucracy. I like to reinvent things constantly. I, I lecture without notes. I never give the same lecture twice. It, it's just, I get really bored. and I, I get bored easily and when I get bored I don't work well. So I, I exited that and I knew I had to come back to academia. So I did a PhD at University of Illinois, Chicago, most of you know, in the business school. Because in the business school you can actually work with people, business people, and you can be academic at the same time. So Since I've come here, everything I've done like with teaching, research has hinged on excellent collaboration. If you have an excellent team that matches each other well, the outcomes that they produce will be surprising even to them. They will express abilities they didn't know that they had if you're able to build a context in which that happens. So this is one of my undergrad classes. Some of you know about the things that I do in my undergrad classes with the drum circle, for instance, this is up on the 11th floor. And we bring them all together, and I get this crazy guy to come in, and he we we play drums for ninety minutes. And by the end of it, it's so loud it sounds like a stampede of buffalo on the eleventh floor. and the the way we finish is everybody hits their drum as hard as they can and screams as loud as they can. And it's like this cathartic kind of experience. Now, you have to understand, this is one of the first things I did at DePaul, and I was doing this as an untenured faculty member in the early days, and I, I would be next to, like, Helen Levon next door or something like that and they'd be like what the hell is he doing in there and I had to make a case for it and when the way I made my case was that I showed the results I, I brought a couple examples these are examples of undergraduate reports that my, a team of maybe five undergrads will write like 200 page plus project reports that are absolutely beautiful and they use these to get jobs I can't tell you how many students have taken these books to um, a hiring manager and they said well, what have you done well I worked in a team that did a project with an external manager and you know CNA and we did an analytical case study of that job, manager's job in his organization and we we showed him some things that made him better at his job so it was like a consulting engagement and The hiring manager's like really what was your deliverable well we made this really great book and they pull it out and they show the hiring manager and it, it makes a big and, pr- and these are undergrads. I mean, I'm telling you, my MBAs usually don't produce the quality of work that these undergrads are able to do, and it's not because the undergrads are particularly smart. they are particularly smart, but the reason they're able to produce these transformational outcomes is because of the connection between them. And so things like the drum circle, where you you just express yourself, and I'm telling you after about... 60 minutes this like group level beat emerges a pulse emerges from the whole group like all 50 people together and that's how you build culture that's culture takes a while to form and it's something that everybody recognizes and can relate to and i want them to feel that because project experiences are the same way now i told you that i i um i I emphasize good collaboration um, in every single thing i do and that even includes with our with our top-level people. I don't care who it is. That's our provost. He's number two in the university. I just went to China with him, and that's uh, some other people from academic affairs, and they wanted me to go there because I'm doing a China project for DePaul right now. But before we went, I insisted that we have two meetings. And they said, why? I said, because I, I just want us to talk a little bit. I, I want to get to know who you are and how you, how you act and how you, how you think and that sort of thing. And we did that twice. And they were like, well, this is odd. Usually when we have meetings, especially at that level, there's an agenda. There's a purpose. I mean, the provost actually said at one point, I don't really see the purpose of this meeting. And I said, no, there's a purpose. If you want me to lead this, this is important to me. And so before you do work with people, it's very important to bring them together. We had a fantastic trip. I mean, we just had a wonderful trip, a lot of humor, a lot of jokes, and that's us at a restaurant in Chongqing, China. So that's just a little bit of uh, an entree, this is me now, by the way, yeah. <laughs> um, into how I think and how important this is. It, it's not a joke, and I'm not, I didn't just wanna talk about collaboration because I can pull some articles out of a magazine or something. It's something I take deadly seriously. Um, I guess the thing that I really want to uh, make the point about today is that collaboration allows you to solve big problems. So you may be dealing with a A distributor or a vendor or students and they may be coming to you with questions or problems that you have no clue how to engage or how to answer or maybe you're dealing with a faculty member and they're making no sense to you they're really upset about something and they're talking to you and you're just looking at them thinking about what you're going to do this evening as their words come out of their mouth that's a collaboration opportunity right there that's when you go to somebody who you know and say you share that knowledge you share that problem with them and they have a point of view about it you're sharing knowledge at this point knowledge is a resource it's like money it's like having friends it's like having technology but it's different from all of those because it's the only resource that gains in value when you give it away so if I have one idea and Rick, you have one idea, and we don't talk to each other. How many ideas do each of us have? The one person. We're left with one. But if we talk to each other, and we have one idea each, after we talk with each other, how many ideas are we each likely to have? Well,
0: it probably is a multiple of two, so... Okay, so... Ideas,
1: <coughs> That's right. So more than one, at least, right? And the giving away was very much part of that abundance. So... You know, sharing your knowledge with other people is good for the organization, but it's hard to do sometimes because you don't know how to engage people. People are weird. They have different personalities than you. They have different points of view and approaches, or they they look funny, or they look different, or they think differently, or they act differently, you know, something like this. So you might run into somebody like that and wonder what they can do for you. I'm going to give you an example of what you guys can do for each other right now. By asking you a question, how many people do you think are in that photo? Give me a number. Call it out. One, two, three. Okay, I hear four. Anyone else see four? How many of you see four people in that? How many do not see four people in that? Okay, keep working. I'm telling you there's about 10 in there. 6 Okay, so we got 1 2 the big head 3 There's a baby. Does the baby count? 4 Okay, where else? On the arch. Like on the side of the arch. To the left or right? Right there, right? Two under the, oh, like facing each other, right? Yeah, no, no. So that's one. <laughs> one, two. Is there another one up there? Yeah, there is. Okay, so one, two, three. Is there another one up there? Yeah. Yeah. Where is that? On the
0: other side of the bird, up on top. Like way up on top, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, all right, good. See that, everybody? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Any others? All right, so there's nine in there. Something important happened while you guys were doing that. It's that you were talking to each other. There was sharing going on. I saw people like this and doing that sort of thing. That's a complex problem. It's it's an example of a a simplified example of a complex problem. But if you were just individuals looking at that, you can imagine all the incorrect responses we get, and maybe one person would get it right. But if that idea is not shared, so that you all can collaborate about it, it's going to be result in a lot of bad decisions. Let's look at another one. Do you see anything weird about that picture? really really weird something really odd there's a what there's a face how do you see a face on there anybody else see a face okay one of you come down here and show us what you see show the others come down the front how many of you still don't see it? <laughs> okay, hardly anybody <laughs> sees it. I think you're the only one or two. <laughs> it's
0: right in the middle. There's a face, there's eyes.
1: all right she's right yeah thank you thank you okay so so one person saw it and it wasn't until she communicated it that the rest of you could see it too let me so this is like the hair right going up and then you follow it around symmetrically around the top it's like this then there's an eye (laughs) okay so yeah right so when you first when you first saw that when you first looked at that everybody felt like some level of uncertainty it's like you don't know what to make of it and then one person discovers it and communicates it to the other people um Christina, if you weren't comfortable with these individuals, you'd be less likely to share your knowledge with them, right? This is very important because when you look at some sort of um, vague environment like that, it's not unlike looking at a market environment or a competitive environment where you're looking at other players in a domain and in order to make sense out of it and see something that's not there, one person is gonna see something you don't see. And so the trick is to find out who that is and build an organization or a team such that they feel comfortable sharing that knowledge and everybody becomes more intelligent as a result and are able to do something about what they're dealing with. Now these are just illusions and examples, but it, it could be anything. It could be something very practical that you're dealing with, perhaps even right now in a project. So if you're confused about what you're dealing with or trying to make sense out of it, a good thing to do is to go to somebody else a real good thing to do is to go to somebody else. But understand, knowledge is dangerous, right? I mean, knowledge is one of those things that you, you share it, but when you start to share knowledge, it can be very threatening to established players. I'm talking about like organizational politics, which all organizations have. When you share knowledge with other people, it, is very, it can be threatening to established players. This is the challenge that entrepreneurial ventures face. This is the challenge that new product development teams face. This is the problems that come with sharing knowledge. Why? Because knowledge is powerful. Knowledge is very powerful. Do you know what this is from? Now do you know? These are suitably blurred. (laughs) But a lot of problems began when there was a sharing of Knowledge, you know, knowledge is many times deemed to be secret, and when it is shared, you know, great things can happen, but bad things can happen. That's uh, that's why I wanted to show you this. It's kind of a nice painting, but the sharing of knowledge is um, very important to collaboration, and uh, it's where it all starts. Um, but but let's let's go a little bit deeper into this. I think to really understand how how people will work together and be able to share knowledge effectively you have to understand a little bit about personality and style Um, you can't just talk to people and say yeah I know this you know that Uh, I mean you kind of can with simple things but you gotta you gotta be around them a little bit and get to feel what they mean when they express themselves because people talk on two levels a lot especially about complex things especially in organizations especially when you're talking across certain boundaries like culture for instance or or gender different things like that you don't always reach one another but personality can play this kind of a role and everybody in here has a different personality each one of you is as different as a snowflake from each other when you really get down to it you can have uh, wild personalities weird personalities I, I put i picked two pictures up here this is my favorite new artist right here Nicki minaj and then uh I, I like that face. That face has kind of a, a vague look about it. What does it imply to you? What does it mean? Sneaky. Sneaky. Mm-hmm. Crazy. I don't like, I don't like <laughs> Nicki Minaj. We got another one here. What does that look like? Angry. Angry. What else could it be? Rage. Rage. What else could it be? <laughs>
0: Frustration.
1: Frustration. It could be she's just trying to pick something up that's real heavy. It could be. All right, that's important, because when you look at, and when you try to make sense out of someone's personality, you, you, you never quite know. A trait can be multiply expressed. When you look at a person, you don't see their personality. You see their behavior. And it's very easy to make errors about what's driving that behavior when you don't see their personality or understand the environment that they're in now there's like a hierarchy here so personality and values lead to emotions and styles so that that's some sort of famous pop star i think i forget the name but i found it online does anybody know who that is i don't know who that is but he looked pretty popular um, and then that's nicholas cage now those are a little bit more easy to interpret i mean the one on the right looks kind of kind of happy, maybe, a little bit. Um, And the one on the, sorry, the one on the left does. The one on the right looks um, nonplussed, or perhaps uh, perplexed, or something like that, trying to figure stuff out. That's the kind of thing that's a little bit more surface level than a personality trait. So when you see somebody expressing a certain emotion, you can't make sense out of it unless you know their personality. Like if you see someone act like a jerk, you're like, man, that... But you know their personality is kind of unpleasant anyway. You think it's normal because that's how they act. And then you, you expect it. It's kind of there. But if you, if you know their personality is quite the opposite and it's happy and friendly and they act like that, then you know something in the environment must have triggered that or happened to them because they're not normally like that. So there's a difference between emotional expression and personality. And then at the, at the top level, behaviors and actions, this is what we can actually see. I mean, that's pretty clear. You have a, you have a excited creature here that is coming at you with aggression, or you have somebody dancing in the, in the park. Now, if you don't know those people, and you don't know their emotional state at this moment, and you don't know their personality, it's kind of hard to make sense out of that. But these are three levels that are very uh, important to, to understand. Now, I'll tell you something else. Organizations are the same way. Organizations are exactly the same. Our organization, for instance, has a culture. There are certain values here that make it what it is. We have Vincentian values. We have. Uh, we like to do things. We have Service Day coming up on Saturday, don't we? Anyone going to Service Day on Saturday? Nobody? I'm going. Someone's dragging me there, but I'm going. I'm gonna. I'm gonna pull weeds out of a flower bed. Something like that for a couple hours on a Saturday morning. What's that? No, you you should go. It's a good thing to do. So it's the right thing to do. What makes it the right thing to do? The fact that this is the culture. So it makes sense here. So when you see a jerk act like a jerk, but you know they have a personality that's a jerk, it's like seeing an organization that has a particular culture. You'd expect to see that at DePaul. You wouldn't expect to see it at, um, I don't know, maybe one of the financial houses or Morgan Stanley or something. You, you probably wouldn't necessarily expect to see it there. So, programs and strategies and behaviors all flow from a culture. And I'm telling you, if you're not in touch with the culture of an organization, it's going to be real hard to collaborate with other people because the culture of the organization relates to your personality over time in subtle ways. And if you're not happy, it's often because your traits and values don't sort of match with the, uh, the values of the organizational culture that you're in. You're not gonna feel it at first. It takes a while to learn a culture. Those of you who have traveled to other cultures or moved around in organizations know it takes about a year to really see things that are invisible. But at the same time, when you get to know a person and you want to feel their personality, you're not going to get it like that. It takes time to really get to know them. So it's good to put yourself in situations where you can figure out what those traits are. The reason for that is because only then will you be able to really bring the best out of them, not until you understand what they really, what they really like. This is a, a conceptual equation from a Kurt Lewin, who is a famous psychologist in the mid-20th century, and that, that B means behavior. That F means function, and when you have P and E in parentheses with a comma between them, it means multiplication, so they're interacting. It's a way to say that behavior is a function of the interaction between person and environment. Um, that's a really, really famous thing. All it means is that, there's a simpler way to write it for you, is that behavior, remember this is what I said you can see, but you can't really make sense out of what's driving it until you understand these things. Personality is what you get to know when you're close to a person and you see them in many different situations. But environment is special for a couple of reasons. One, you can control it. I can turn up the light or turn the light down, I can turn music on, I can, I can, uh, I can say, intelligent things right out of the literature, I can talk about other kinds of things. When you interact with people you can manipulate their environment just by being around them. That's really important because the nature of a, of a personality trait is such that it feels good to express it. That's why if you work in an organization for a long time with a culture and your personality doesn't mesh with it, it's, it causes stress. It, it, it causes like a kind of agitation that builds up over time subtly. But if your culture, if the culture and your personality gel together, it's the opposite. It's therapeutic. It feels good to express your personality traits. Personality traits are like one level above the biological needs, like hunger or the need for sleep. You know, that kind of stuff. When you're really tired, doesn't it feel good to lay down and shut your eyes? Yeah. If you're really sociable, and you like to express that trait, isn't it hard when you're working by yourself all day long? And then finally you get to be around some people, and man, it feels so good just to talk to people and interact with people, right? But if you're the opposite of that, if you're very non-sociable, being around people in an environment that allows you to express or encourages you to express that trait, that drains you of energy that's that match between the environment that you're in and the personality trait that you have or the style that you have that drives behavior so when you see really motivated behavior don't make the conclusion that that person is just a motivated person in general all the time that's not what you're looking at that's not what's going on what's going on is that person has a particular personality that just happens to be in a context That compels really highly motivated behavior and once you crack that nut with the people you're dealing with you can work with them and interact with them because you are part of their environment it's not like it's just you and them on the same side against the world it's them vis-a-vis you and your personality can interact with theirs and what you do can interact with their traits and if you know they love to talk and you give them opportunities to do that you bring the best out of People, personality traits are inherently social. They don't exist in a vacuum. Think about that for a minute. They are inherently social. They do not exist in a vacuum. That's a really old idea. Um, very old idea. This framework right here is probably well more than 2,000 years old that picture in the middle is of Galen who was a he was a Greek physician who was Marcus Aurelius's physician Marcus Aurelius was a Roman emperor in the year 100 200 something like that and he wrote a lot about the body and medicine and how people work But in those days, you see, biology and psychology were the same thing. They didn't make a distinction between the two. And the way to think at that time about humanity was that there are two fundamental dimensions. Dominance, which can range from being highly dominant to being the opposite, which is submitting to what others want you to do. And warmth, which Warm means you're just a warm, engaging personality. It's, you like being close to others, almost like a physical warmth feeling versus the opposite, which is cold. You like to be by yourself. People vary in terms of this, and you can kind of extrapolate pretty easily to personalities. I mean, you know the people that like to be in charge. They feel that. They, they thrive on it. They're energized by it. Why? Because, like I said, personality traits... It feels good to express them if they're in a situation that allows them to express that. It's energizing. But if you put somebody who's the opposite of that in a position where they need to be dominant to manage things, it's going to create anxiety. Their best is not going to come out. And people vary on these dimensions. So, how many of you would say you're high up there on that that vertical dimension? High? Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you're dominant. Okay. As I As I come down a little bit, about halfway toward the middle, raise your hand if you think you're there. Anybody? Maybe? Yeah, a couple? What about in the very middle? Anybody like right at the average level of dominance? Raise your hand, I need to see you. All right. What about down here toward the low end? You don't really prefer to be in charge. You'd prefer to leave that to somebody else. That's perfectly fine with you. Who's down there? Anybody at all? Anybody in this room? It's okay to admit it. The problem is these are the people who are less likely to raise their hand anyway. So. <laughs> I know they're in here. So a couple of you were high, a lot of you were in the middle and Danielle just said she's down here, right? No, I'm low high. Oh, you're way high, okay. So there's variance, there's variance. That's, that's what I wanted to uh, get out. All right, now think about this one, warm. Really warm, you, you just you're, you're energized by being close to other people versus you are energized by being able to work alone by yourself. How many of you would say you're over here? Like way over there. Now as I as I hit your level, raise your hand. So that's almost like a normal distribution. I think most of your hands were up when I was in the middle and that, that would be what you would what you'd expect. Now they knew this at the time, and these are orthogonal, by the way, these dimensions, they're not related. Anybody can be high-high, high-low, high, low-low, or low-high, and people varied. Um, but the way they thought about this at the time was that these corresponded to certain personality types. So that upper right one, they had words for this. Uh, that, that word up there, this is a really old wood carving that I found, it's from the 17th century, I think. Um, Sanguinous is what that says sanguine is from the greek word for blood um, galen believed that people who were high dominant and warm at the same time had a lot of blood in their bodies it was like this life force kind of thing sanguine we still use the word with that meaning by the way over here uh choleric choleric was a way to talk about what is known now as yellow bile in the body, and uh, Galen, the physician, remember medical science and psychology were together at this point in history. The idea was you know in choleric you you 've heard that word like cholera and that sort of thing. This is the, uh, the the you know the person who likes to be in charge but doesn't like other people, so there's like an evil genius kind of mentality there and remember when I, when I did this up and down thing, you guys varied in terms of this, so I think Some of you are here and some of you are here. There's probably some all around this. It's just natural. Humans vary in that way. It's very important to collaboration. I'm going to tie this together in just a little bit. So choleric. Now, this is, um, they call it melancholy or melancholia or bilious sometimes. It's called that corresponds to uh, black bile. Black bile. It's another bodily humor. Galen called it the, the four humors, the classical humors. And, a, uh, uh, an abundance of this was associated with a particular type of person. So you can probably read into this and understand how they uh, treated personality disorders in those days, right? Bloodletting—you've heard of that, when just draining your blood and doing other things—and so, and that evolved into the to another practice later, much later. The things like the lobotomy and psychology was really, really bad for for a long time. Um, and then the last one is phlegmatic. What's the root word of phlegmatic? Phlegm, phlegm. what is phlegm? <laughs> yeah, like mucus, like you <laughs> like hawk it up and spit it out. So the, this is, is supposed that people who were, had this particular type had an abundance of snot or mucus in their bodies. It's a nice way to describe things. So, you know, we still use that word today, did you know that, phlegmatic? When you call somebody phlegmatic, it means they are sort of calm or emotionally still, or that kind of thing. So this is what I mean. In the intro that I sent to all you guys, um, these things are deeply rooted that we're talking about, and if you get a handle on this, because I'm telling you, everybody varies in terms of these dimensions. We're gonna go a little deeper here in a minute, but knowing yourself and having a feel for how others are can go a long way to making for good collaboration because if you're with somebody who creates an environment that makes you feel energized you will do things that you were unaware you were able to do just like my students do. I put great care into building teams in my undergrad classes. I want a good complementary match of styles so that they bring the best out of each other and it's rooted in this. I mean I don't sit there and ask them about their blood or their bile or their phlegm. But the things I do talk about and the, the questions I give them are, are rooted in this, um, this history of understanding how humans function. Now, I can pull this forward into um, the way we think about personality today. Now, same dimensions, warm, cold, dominant, submitting. But when you look at the factorial combinations, um, That's our modern-day definition of extroversion. Extroversion is not a a pure trait. It is a combination of two traits. It is a combination of being wanting to be in charge but also liking other people. These are the people that join clubs and want to join and go up and move up. That's extroverted. The polar opposite um, literally is introversion, which you all know. Um, But we don't always think about the fact that introverts they not only don't like being around other people, they also don't like being in charge. um, This is confounded a little bit by socially desirability because uh, nobody really wants to be weak and hateful. Um, It's just not a nice way to think of yourself. Um, But it's not the case anyway. There's nothing wrong with being an introverted person. Um, And then the other dimension is uh, calculating. So like uh, Machiavellian, that's the evil genius quadrant. The... uh, You've heard that term Machiavellian, right? This is the individual that uh, likes to be in charge but doesn't like other people. Therefore, this individual is adept at attaining power but a a miser in sharing it and also one that will make decisions that favors himself or herself but not other people. So it's that kind of personality. And then the the polar opposite of that is meek or obsequious, exploitable kind of a thing. This is the kind of... uh, Happy, just sort of there, just say, "Hey, I like all you guys, just sort of there, <laughs> go do that, okay, <laughs> you know that kind of a personality is um is this um most people are in the middle. I, I should add that uh, Galen and the whole sound mind and the sound body idea was based on balance back in those days, and same today uh, I think. In terms of uh, the population, most people are here. But you know, people do vary along these dimensions. Now, how does this really? Do you have a Do you have a handle on this framework that I've given you? It's not complex, but do you have a any questions about it, or do you have a do you have a good This is a very useful paradigm for for thinking about um, human performance.
0: Where
1: would you place yourself? Right in the middle. Yeah. Well, maybe a little bit high. On the yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a little bit high on the, on the vertical one. Would you say
0: that it can change based on your environment? Like I was thinking about this as in my home environment versus my work environment. I can see slightly different places.
1: Right. Yeah, that's a great question. In fact, I believe I believe that this this model fits largely here. Right. Mm-hmm. Um Your work environment versus your home environment means this varies. So you at home Yield certain behaviors and and you at work Yield certain other behaviors and so you may have a personality uh, Profile or a strong level of a trait that you like to express it feels good to clean everything up It feels good to take care of details And maybe at work you really have an opportunity to express that so there's a certain kind of motivated behavior that comes out of you at work whereas at home Maybe you just like to be nurturant. Um, And so that environment gives you the opportunity to express that trait. Remember, it feels good to express your traits. It's like being hungry and getting food when when you're in that kind of situation. That's, and if you've ever seen a hungry person be motivated to go get something to eat, I mean, it's the same thing at work. I'm like, oh man, I get a chance to clean something up. Let me at it. You know, you are right there. Um, It makes me think, I don't really believe people are lazy. You know someone who's lazy? You know, I I know people and they look lazy, they act lazy, but then you put them in front of a computer game and they'll stay up all night, like pounding the buttons. (laughs) Like there's this, I'm like, that energy, man, it's incredible. Well, they have some kind of trait that that environment is allowing them to express. So the challenge is to build a work environment that taps into that a little bit. I don't think anyone's inherently just lazy, like in terms of, low energy and they're like a slug I, I think people can you can bring the best out of them by having this sort of environment that's a really good question any other questions about this one before I move on alright so this is the this is the key that I want to uh, kind of the first part of the key that I want to leave you with If you think about the vertical dimension, dominant down to submitting, uh, the logic that governs compatibility and collaboration there is opposites attract. So people who like to be in charge work better with people who don't like to be in charge. If you have two people who like to be in charge working on the same thing, they're going to fight right? for control on some level probably if you have people who are low in both and you put them together i mean nothing's really going to get done it's like you want to do it no 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 go ahead no i don't want to go ahead no no you go it's it's sort of like like that but if you have somebody that says okay here's what we need to do you know take care of this then do this okay and then they do it it's a nice match for collaboration of the work and remember The person who likes to be told what to do is energized by that. The person who likes to tell and command is energized by that situation. So there are a lot of team building ramifications there. But it's not always opposites attract because the other dimension is birds of a feather flock together. Warm people like to be around other warm people. Cold people don't really like to be around anybody but if they have to be they will like to be around another cold person because there is nothing more onerous than having someone say hey what are you doing hey don't touch me man. hey what are you doing hey how do you feel about i don't feel anything get away you know get away and they they go back over there and they're like stay away from me i mean then they feel okay it's like that basic of a reaction. If you've ever worked with somebody who's just really like this, you know what I'm talking about. It, is, it creates anxiety for them to have someone on them all the time. But let me tell you, if you have somebody like this, it's energizing, they like that. Oh, you're back again, yeah, that's, that's nice. What are you doing now? You know, just talk, because it's a chance to feel that, that warmth. So the logic there is uh, birds of a feather. Now, if you, because all people have both dimensions in them, we have to combine them. And so what that means is that the quadrant up here, which we called extroverted earlier, they tend to work a little bit better with people on this side of the model, but they uh, going up and down, they tend to work better with people who are lower than them, if you follow me. So there's someone who is very friendly but is a control type of person combined with somebody who's very friendly but doesn't really like to be in charge versus uh, this one, which you, know, you have the, um, the person that calculates, likes to be in charge, doesn't like to deal with other people, will tend to work better with these types of individuals. You can measure this. When I worked at Schneider that's, I I have measures and and they're not like the disc measure that anybody can buy. I have measures that they only sell to you if you have a PhD and I can do consulting projects with them. You can measure these in people and get reliable results and build teams and companies pay big money for that. And it's, it's, and it works. Um, It's, what can you do? Can you look at your colleagues in here and get a sense of which people are in which quadrant? (laughs) Maybe, but you can only do that if you've been around them long enough to get a sense of their personality. Like I told you earlier, you can't figure someone out fast. It takes a long time to learn a personality or to learn a culture. It takes time. But once you get a real good sense of who they are down deep, then you know who goes well together and who doesn't and who might clash and who might not. Now it gets a little bit more complicated because sometimes you want people to clash, and I'm going to talk about that in just a second. But this is the basic uh, framework. You, um, this is how you bring the best out of each other over time. This was um, really the underlying model in that that research article that I showed you earlier, that appeared in that journal that I that I showed you. It's <clears throat> probably my third most cited paper. It's um, it's a high impact publication, and we we did find support for what i'm what I'm telling you today. and I, I have used it with companies, and I it always guides my thinking. If I know people are going to have to work together, I really try to wrap my head around this and match them because again, personality traits have a very distinct social component. There are some people that say personality traits don't mean anything unless there's more than one person present because otherwise, there's going to be no judgment or evaluation of traits and no real opportunity to express them in a a meaningful way now what this means for work and a good way to apply it is um, to think about how how a team works or how a project works this is probably familiar to a lot of you this this process right here it's it's easy to remember it it rhymes except for the last one Um, Forming, storming, norming, performing, and adjourning. <laughs> adjourning. Um And so th- you can think about if there's a task or some work that needs to be done, in the beginning you, you form a team. You pick members, you define objectives, you, you stick them together, but you do it in a way that you think they're going to be comfortable sharing ideas and getting to know one another and all of that. But there's a very important part that I think a lot of people forget. You know, I'm an entrepreneurship professor, so I'm, I'm really familiar with this. I, I'm used to people arguing, and you know, the companies that I work with, if they're not yelling at each other when they have top management team meetings, I think something might be wrong here. I mean, it can't be that good. There are storms in nature, for a reason. Um, it, it uncovers options that would be invisible otherwise, and. So that's a very important process. So you can think about what we just talked about. You might want a couple of dominant people together if a project is at this stage, an early, early stage, and you really want them to come up with some ideas. And you put people in there who just match each other really well. They may be inclined to settle upon something that feels right and just go with it, whereas a little bit of clashing might be important, okay? Um, but if you're a good project manager, you understand that people can be rotated in and out of projects. So at some point, if you want that to stop, if you want those people to stop fighting each other so they can uh, settle upon something and go with it, there's a nice kind of a match based on personal style that can be done here. This is, norming means that you, you, find out, you decide upon what's going to be the normal course of action. And that's what we're going to do going forward. Back here is when you're still trying to figure that out, and then you perform, you do the job, you meet the deadline, you have the final meeting or whatever it is, and then there's a there's a final a final stage to all of it called adjourning. Adjourning. That's very important, the adjourning stage. Um, I would encourage you guys to um, when you work on projects. I always do this. Like, it, it's sort of it's part celebration and ceremony is very much part of human culture and if you're going to try to get in tune with a culture you think about the the world's cultures they all have ceremonies and things that they do that are important to the human condition if you're going to try to tune into that and get a sense of who people are way down deep and build a culture after you perform and do whatever you're going to do there should be some chance to come together and just reflect on the shared experience that you all had at the end of it that's very important and I think Organizations don't always do that when they should. Because you're going to have to work with these people again, right? And there's a, there's a way to reflect and bury the hatchet. And so, so next time you can get that hatchet back out and fight again. <laughs> but um, that's why um, when you build a team, think about the project and the environment that you're going into and um, whether you want a little bit of clash or, or not. That's uh. That brings me to the end. I, I have about five minutes and I'd be happy to talk with you guys, but you guys in the beginning, you were like nodding off, but you woke up about halfway through, man, I can feel it. You know, if you talk, if you talk to audiences as much as profs do, you, you learn how to read a room. Like I can feel pockets of energy in this room, like um, certain kinds of like attention over here and <laughs> like uh, certain kinds of uh, curiosities about the material over here. And uh, in the back, I like this guy, Patrick. What's he talking about now? <laughs> back there in the back, I can feel that. No, it's good. So I've been feeling you the whole time, and uh, it's it's an honor to call you colleagues. Really, I like working here a lot with you guys. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, question.
0: You know, secret. You know, being secretive to you know keep that knowledge rather than sharing it. So, mm. how does you know? How do you recommend when there's one or two individuals that are really you know pro collaboration, but the environment or the culture such that right. is such it's resistant
1: to. it? You know, there's a great saying in German: um, a, "A fish stinks from the head." Mm-hmm. I don't know how to say it in German, otherwise I would have. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I think culture, like structure and like strategy and like control, comes from the top. And usually that's a case of needing to get rid of some people at the top to really fundamentally change what's going on because if there are elements within an organization that aren't meshing with each other and you think the problem is culture culture is hard to change right but if you're going to change it culture doesn't change bottom-up climate changes bottom-up culture starts with founders and key decisions that affect a lot of things I, I think removing and that's difficult, right, sometimes. But I think removing the person who is in the leadership role or some sort of shift there tends to change the... Because it's programming. Culture programs you. And, and the way to shift a culture has a lot to do with the leadership decisions that are made. You mentioned about when
0: person is mean and jerk and all that, and they act like jerk, We you usually accept them as who they are? So
1: what do we tolerate them? I mean, if, if they are acting that way. <laughs> and there's if, like a... But if a person is yeah. not, and the person is nice, and all of a sudden they are having a bad day, whatever, and act that way, people are like, ooh, what's wrong with this person? I mean, you mentioned that a little bit ago. I mean, there, there's two, two things that come to mind. So there's, um, there's this idea that there should be a no-asshole rule in companies. Mm-hmm. There's a book about that. Um, if they're a jerk, don't have them around. I I think that's a little harsh, it's designed to sell books. I I think there is some kind, if you're a very skillful manager, you can organize and create a work environment that will allow the jerk person to not work with others so much, at least not as much as other people, but then do things that just appeal to their jerkiness. Like give them all the bad clients to deal with. or something like that, I I think a careful decision about what they actually do, and I'm telling you, you know, you you talk, you know, there are jerks at work, right? And there are people who want power, but they don't have it. And they, they, they get into this sort of unpleasant personality. A good way to fix that sometimes, and it's ironic is to give them what they want. Oh, you're pissed because you're not in charge. Okay. Now you're in charge. Sometimes you'll see that personality absolutely shift because now they're satisfied and they become extremely nice. So I, I think that kind of abrasive attitude is usually a case of somebody wanting something they can't have. Think about people, how they act when, when you're hungry but you can't eat. I mean, you're not pleasant, right? There's something they want that they can't have and it's deeply rooted. I, just like I don't really think people are lazy, I honestly don't think there are a lot of jerks around. I think people are inherently good I think when you see somebody behave, remember the person, personality leads to behavior and the environment moderates that relationship. When I see that kind of behavior, I, I believe there is an environmental situation that will allow them to express themselves in ways that won't be unpleasant to other people and that's the difference between great managers and good ones. Great managers know how to structure the environment and remember you are part of their environment. How to behave around them and how to structure the work so that they come across in a less unpleasant way. That, that's my belief.
0: What's your thought on what physical spaces do in terms of building culture and environment? Like, does the way you actually sit around each other matter, or how you're organized in the physical space, whether there's you know, walls and segments. I, I say this because, like, we're we've doing it before. Uh-huh. going down there. And, you know, it's pretty much a traditional academic model of departments and faculty offices and everything. And that's part of that is just how the universities operate. But, like, there's also an opportunity to build where, like, there's more of a collaborative environment where you're actually right. physically seated. So, instead of being sort of corralled into mm-hmm. corners? I don't know if that affects the stuff? Absolutely.
1: I think the physical layout of a space has a profound effect on a culture. Um, and you can think anthropologically about this, like the, the mountainous regions of, of China, for instance. In places where there are mountains, people who are pretty close to each other, communities, speak entirely different languages. And those languages are tied to the environment around them and they're not able to communicate with each other. And it's the barriers that prevent them from sharing information and it forces them apart from one another. I think in organizations, barriers are—they have a similar kind of effect. It will shape the culture over time. Um, I, I don't think one is better than the other, though. I, I think you need both. Uh, And so if there is a need for collaboration, some projects require that, like certain marketing campaigns where you need to be creative. The sharing of knowledge is very, um, it's endemic, it's part of being very creative, sharing of knowledge. But other kinds of work where you need to be exact and not be distracted and error is bad, which is the opposite of creativity, There's, there's a space for that too. So I think you need both, but in my opinion too much of one or the other is bad. Because the nature of the projects you're going to do, there's a great range of them, but there's no question that the physical layout uh, affects that. Like, like even in here, I mean, these rooms are great because I can see everybody's faces. I, I really can read the room. If it was flat, it'd be a little bit more difficult. So I make, I learn every one of my students' names by, you know, halfway through the quarter because I see these faces and I just remember that. Um, and. That enables more, better quality communication and if it wasn't like that, I wouldn't be able to do that and there wouldn't be as good of a personal touch because I can say things because I see their face light up when I say something and then next week if I say something similar I remember that and then I can appeal to them again. That would all be impossible and that, yeah, that certainly has an effect on So work.
0: like when you're consulting with startups, do you ever say, actually you guys just need a new office? That's the point. Like, is that a solution? Like I, uh, your problems are the way you, this physical space just isn't jiving with the way the you work.
1: I've seen startups build a space with a very careful consideration of these issues. I, I, I've never seen one where I've said or I've heard somebody say you need a totally different. But I, I can imagine that it would that it would happen. Yeah, it's important. But you know, with our social media. You know, now, I mean, I can, you know, I have almost 2,000 Twitter followers. I can ping all of them. I was in the taxi last night going home and I saw one of my students in front of Chicago Theater. Yanni played there last night. I mentioned I'm going to see him tonight. So I tweeted him, Hey, I saw you there. Yeah, it's a great show. Cool. I'll see you in the morning. So we were already halfway through our conversation before I even saw him. So, and I know you're familiar with that kind of stuff. So getting around boundaries is becoming easier. And then with Google, Plus, I'm using Google Plus in my classes now, I don't use D2L, because it's too. it has the problem you just stated, too, there's too many weird barriers. They can hit a button and there's nine of them talking with each other on video and if they need me they hit a button, I'm at home watching a movie, it happened this way and my computer makes a noise, I'm like what, oh, do they want me or not, and I'm like do you need me to come there, they're like yes please come here, so I hit a button. I'm in the room with nine of my students and they had a specific question which I answered and then I went back to my movie and so getting around boundaries is becoming easier but yeah, I'm, even though I'm pretty technological oriented I'm a big believer in traditional classroom instruction. I need to see faces and all of that because I know feeling a personality like I was talking about in person is easier than when you're virtual for sure. Any other questions? Yeah. You I, are I put them in a situation that is, gives them a lot of different affordances to express themselves. So, one of the way I do it is a token economy where Before I went to New Orleans and worked with Naked Pizza, we did this because I needed to know who this team was. Like like I said, I always do this. And they, they start out with varying amounts of, I think it was Lemonhead candies in a bag. And then there was some rich, the rich class and the poor class. And then they did these interactions where they could win money or give up money. And it activates certain things. So like that environment, if someone's really competitive, it's gonna come out. If someone's really friendly, it's going to come out so it, it's a matter of manipulating what you can control, which is usually the environment and then if you're if you're skillful at that, you know how to do it such that they express themselves because it's amazing how quickly people just sort of forget they're being watched and express their inhibit the, their inhibitions will go down, and that'll come out. That's how I do it. I do have tests that I can use, but um yeah, it's not really. Class isn't good for that. There might even be some legal things with doing that, so I just do, like, exercises. Is that it? You guys have been awesome. I enjoyed this a lot. Thank you.